Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hey, everybody. Welcome to It Never Rains on this podcast. I'm Hithliday. I'm the managing editor for Addicted to Quack. It's a website. Joining me this week is one of the great ATQ writers, Adam Holland. How you doing? Good. Uh, ready to talk some basketball and softball. Um, wasn't able to get all the softball done today uh, because of the rain, but we got some to talk about uh, from the Sunshine State. Uh, something tells me uh, we've seen pretty much all we're going to out of Mount St. Mary's. Um, uh, yeah, no. And then Florida State didn't make the trip. And, and then Washington decided that uh, rain was an insurmountable and unpredictable obstacle for them. So, um, <laughs> so they weren't going to leave Seattle, which sounds a uh, whole lot like their uh, football team in 2020. So we're not going to see them either. Um <laughs> Uh, yeah, but you did write up, um, uh, when the ducks played uh, UCF in Baylor, uh, a little, uh, a little bit ago, uh, they split, uh, uh, those in two pretty tight games. Both of them were decided by a single run. Um, I, for my money, actually, I, I thought they were actually pretty enjoyable, uh, uh, games to watch. Um, the, uh, the first game against UCF, uh, uh, you know, Oregon wound up prevailing. It was the the first inning was pretty wild, right? Like, yeah, you know, that was that was a lot of action really early on. Yeah, uh, UCF was designated the visiting team, so they they started out first. Uh, um, they hit a, a, a I think they had a single in the. Yeah, they the, let off with the single, yeah. and then uh, Morgan Scott struck out the next batter, and then, but then they, you know, put in a second single, uh, and, and then a third would, you know, which was a, you know, two RBI, um, uh, but you know, but then you know, two two more ground outs, you know, to to end the damage there, um, uh, you know, so two runs, but then Oregon answers in the bottom of the third with three. Yeah, that was that was an impressive take with two outs. Uh, yeah, that was the other thing was that it started out, the whole thing was done with two outs, like Oregon immediately, like the first two batters, which was unusual. Cause like starts out with Kylie Shar, who's like all she, she's, she's the slapper. Like all she does is the lead off is get on base. Like, you know, she's, she's not a power hitter. Like she's never, ever, ever gonna, you know, take the thing out of the park or, or even get an extra base, but she'll, she'll get singles all day long. But she, she, you know, she, she was out on a pop fly, which is like, how does that happen? Um, and, and then Emma Koff, you know, ground out. Uh, so the whole thing happens with, with two outs <laughs> and, uh, but Ariel Carlson hits a single, just like absolutely ropes it to left field. Um, and then she proceeds to steal second, <laughs> which is great. Um, then Alyssa Daniel comes up, hits a triple, you know, not knocks, you know, uh, Carlson home. And then Hannah Delgado comes up and hits a home run, which obviously, you know, is just like, you know, nothing but fireworks. And then yeah. 
and then not that it wound up mattering, but Valerie Wong, you get hit by a pitch, you know, and, you know, but then Kate and, and, uh, and then KK Humphreys, you know, hits a single. So now, you know, bases are, you know, kind of juiced again, you get two, but then, you know, until you burn, uh, 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 grounds out. And, and, and so, you know, Oregon winds up stranding too, but it was like, you know, at, at that point on Oregon has the lead and they never give it up. Right. You know? No, so, yeah. And that, that, that cushion proved to be pretty crucial later on, uh, especially in the, in the top of the seventh when UCF yeah. was trying to make their comeback. Uh, yeah. The uh, Oregon added insurance run or actually wound up being, you know, necessary, uh, in the bottom of the third, it was like, it was all like Ayana Shaw too, uh, doing it because, uh, uh, Alyssa Daniel in, in a, like a long at bat, like, I, I think it was like a 10, I think it was like a 10 pitch at bat. She finally wound up walking. Um, and then Shaw comes in to pinch run for her. Um, and uh, uh, and then like on the next batter up, you know, she winds up. It, it, it's not like stealing second, but basically on a ground out, she winds up getting second instead of the force out. Uh, then she steals third, and then Valerie Wong, you know, hits a pop fly, but you know she's able to to you know score, you know, after tagging up. Um, and and that you know, but but she wouldn't have been able to done that, do that if she wasn't fast enough to get to second and then steal third, Yeah, you know? So, so like that was all on her speed and she's not even a starter, you know, like she came in and manufactured that run on her speed. And that, you know, in a game that Oregon won four to three, you know, like every, every little bit makes a difference. Yeah, realize, like realize that that would be the go ahead run, but it was. Yeah. And then, you know, it was a pretty good pitching performance. Um, you know, Morgan Scott, you know, wound up with the win uh, in, in a pretty she wound up, you know, with the two, you know, she gave up the two uh, runs, you know, the start of the inning that we already talked about. Otherwise, you know, four strikeouts, uh, you know, only one walk. Um, yeah. you know, she pitched almost the entirety of the game, you know, Taylor Spencer came in for, for, you know, briefly gave up a run then immediately got, you know, it was like, all right, enough of that. Um, you know, that, that was on in the top of the fifth, although Oregon pretty, you know, quickly limited the damage there. And then Stevie Hansen closed it out in a pretty nice performance. Um, although she did hit a batter, uh, maybe not that nice, <laughs> but, uh, you know, be, because Oregon added the insurance, you know, uh, uh, that was it, she, you know, she just needed to, to finish it out. And, 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 uh, and basically they were swinging at everything there at the top of the seventh. Um, you know, they, they intentionally walked, uh, 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 you know, they, they, they intentionally walked, um, uh, some, the, 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 you know, their big slugger, but then, you know, Morgan Scott comes in to, to, uh, to, to, to finish it and, and gets the two strikeouts at the end of the game to, to, to kill it, which is like, I don't know, pretty dramatic, you know? Yeah. Um, well, good, yeah. Uh, good, good, good way to dig themselves out of an early hole early on and definitely an entertaining game. I know. Like, I, I, I seriously, I, I thought this was actually just a straight up the most fun game of softball that I've I've watched all year. Like it was like it was, t you know, the whole it was it was close and exciting the entire game. Um, yeah. 
Like it was just, yeah, it was just straight up a fun game. I mean, like today's game where there was just like, it was just nothing but candy. Mm-hmm. You know, it was like ice cream all day long. Cause like just the poor Mounties. Uh, <laughs> like, I mean, they're just they're so bad. Like they're like everything that like, like, I don't know if you watch the, the game today, but it was just like, it was you know like well yeah caught caught the first few innings and it was already over by then. oh yeah no (laughs) yeah you know but by the weather delay i mean it was just like the the pitches across the plate were so slow it was i mean it was just candy i mean it was literally so slow that every time oregon got a single it was an automatic double because you could just steal second by the time the pitch got across the plate. (laughs) Like, like the catcher had no chance of throwing at the second. (laughs) It was like, that's, Oh boy. So like, if, if that's the kind of thing that you're interested in, like the all cotton candy diet, I could, I guess I could understand you finding that type of game more, more fun. Uh, I I am not the all cotton candy diet kind of person. I like this game, this, this game. Yeah was fun uh for me and then the baylor game that followed it was sort of the same thing just the you know the opposite outcome oregon lost by by one uh but even then you know they they had a chance you know bottom of the seventh they got a run you know and, and they needed you know they needed to manufacture one more run to go to extra innings and they just couldn't you know they couldn't do it but like you know that you know it was a low scoring game a bit of a pitcher's duel you know uh, baylor got a couple of runs in the 5th off of uh y- y- you know the uh where where stevie hansen you know she beamed a batter um uh and, and, you know and, and followed by giving up a, basically she she lost control of her pitch you know frankly uh you know in the top of the 5th she probably should have been pulled a little earlier um it's sort of unfortunate. I don't know. The, the interesting thing to me from the pitching perspective, uh, well, I, I said what I wanted to say. Like, I, I I think she probably should have been pulled a little bit earlier, but like hindsight's twenty twenty. The, yeah. the, the, the interesting thing to me was that uh, uh, Elisa Kowalski got the start in that game. And it's, it's an interesting performance. It's like this one of everything. You know, she, she gave up one run and one walk she had one wild pitch but she also got a strikeout uh you know she she saves she faced seven batters uh mm-hmm. and, and she retired most of them um like i don't know I, I think oregon's bullpen is interesting this year because it potentially goes five deep of playable pitchers yeah and, right and and like i i i count sokolowski as one of them like you know i know this wasn't sure. like I, you know, that doesn't read as an ace performance or anything. No, but it wasn't, it wasn't a disaster either. No, it wasn't like, and the fact that it's, and, and, and you saw four of them in the, in this game, Sokolowski, Hanson, Spencer, and Scott, the four, the fifth that we didn't see is Breedlove, but we have seen her, you know, we saw her uh, pitch in Clearwater. We'll, we'll probably see her pitch um, tomorrow um, on, on Friday, recording this on Thursday night. Um, Sokolowski got some, uh, especially in the, uh, in the uh, top of the second, when the, when the bases were loaded, she got a pop up and a a strikeout. That was, yeah. I was getting out of a grind, so yeah, it wasn't all bad. Yeah, definitely. Um, and, and then uh, 
Yeah, so we got to see all all, all four of the pitchers. You know, ultimately they they limited Baylor to three runs, um, which you know ought to be enough to win the game. Frankly, you know, like they got a little bit of trouble there in the fifth, but uh, 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 you know, on that, you know, should have been fine. It, it was a bit of a, I don't know, it, you know, Oregon only put up two runs. You know, one of them was in the bottom of the seventh, sort of desperation mo- mode. So you know, uh, uh, it, yeah. It's a little crazy that Ariel Carlson never connected. And, you know, what we know is sort of the rest of the season is that Oregon would do this sort of hot and cold thing where either it's nothing but cotton candy, like today's game, you know, or they're getting skunked. And it's sort of like Ariel Carlson's the canary in the coal mine. You know, she, you know, she, she's the, she's the weather vane. Yeah, you know, like in, in games like this where she gets nothing, you know, she has two at bats, and you know, one's a strikeout, and one's a, you know, I think a ground out. Yeah, you know, they're losing games like that. Like she needs to connect. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, I, I don't know, just just not enough hits. You know, like they, they get five hits. Um, they wound up stranding two, which is not a lot to strand. They just need to, they just need to connect more. Yeah. And even even that uh you know kind of like random error by Humphreys where she went too too far. And, yeah. Yeah. So I mean there's in games like that where it's a it's a one run game, there's definitely like little things that you look back on that are like, you know, oh, that could have been the, the thing that turned everything. But it's it true. Oregon got thrown out for like I think there was like three different plays in which Oregon was attempting to steal bases and they got thrown out against Baylor. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, which I don't know that like, uh, that's pretty rare. Oregon usually has a pretty significant athletic advantage versus for, first of all, they're just faster than just about every team that they played. And second of all, they're, they're pretty smart about it. Like they're not like crazy reckless. They're like, they're, they're, they're cagey about it. You know, yeah. they, they steal when it's appropriate to, yeah, they they're usually a very smart stealing team. Yeah. Uh, so like that many, you know, yeah, they, they, they're pretty good at manufacturing. Um, they're pretty, they're pretty good at small ball. They're pretty good at manufacturing. And so it was, it was surprising to see, um, you know, that may, I, I sort of feel like if this game were played like 10 times, it's probably not 10 Baylor wins. Like, I I might even go so far as to say that Oregon maybe wins the majority of them, like maybe like six to four. Um, yeah. It was an unusual game with some, you know, some unusual errors, some unusual twists and yeah. whatnot. But it was even even despite that, they stayed right in the game and had a chance there in the seventh. But still, it is like what's what's not anomalous or well. It is anomalous in that it's crazy. If you told me in the off season that this was going to happen, I would say you're nuts. But now that we are three weekends into the year, it, it is now, you know, well, it's just part of the data of this season. Yeah. What's not anomalous is there are games in which Oregon's just not hitting the ball enough. Um, and this was one of them. Like, oh, yeah. 
you know, they, they still could have won the game with this many hits if some other stuff had broken their way, which is why I say that, like, I sort of think that this was Oregon's game to win even still. But, but man, they, they still should have been hitting the ball more. And, like, that's still the, like, kind of the story and the mystery of the season is that, like, with this much senior... With this many seniors coming back and who every year they've been playing for Coach Lombardi, it's been it's been the gun show. Yeah. You know, they, needed, they, they played. They needed they need definitely needed to provide more offense, given given, like I said, the pitching, not that the yeah. pitching was bad or anything, but. Well, I just mean like the sweep, the sweep of the season so far is that like it's it's the it's the it's the craziest GD thing that like how could a team that's loaded with this many seniors who out throughout their entire careers have been nothing but fireworks and indeed in like half the games they play are nothing but fireworks can in the other half of their games just go ice cold. Like it's yeah. not like we've never seen them go ice cold in, in previous seasons. Like you'll see it once or twice, but not, not on like, consistently though, not on like half the games they play. Like, yeah. Oh man. Like we're, they're going to need to solve that mystery real fast when oh, yeah. they, when the, you know, cause conference plays around the corner. Um, I, I kind of have a theory I, I, I don't know. I, 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 I we'll see about this. I kind of have a theory that with all these out of conference, like they're going to tournaments, right? And yeah. at all the tournaments that they're playing at, Oregon is like has been the highest rated team other than Clemson. Mm-hmm. But for a, most of the teams that they played, didn't also play Clemson, with the exception of Indiana. Uh, which means I think that everybody saved their best pitcher for Oregon. Mm-hmm. Certainly seems that way. And and when you're in conference play, that's not how it works. You got to play three games, and so you can only play your best pitcher once, maybe twice. Yeah, exactly. They're not having series against these teams, just right. one offs. So I'm I, I if if that theory is okay, like, and that's the other thing is I don't know these other teams well. Like I know Pac-12 teams because I you know Oregon sees them all the time, right? I've been watching them for all this time too, and you know it's not like I do as intense film study on softball as I do on football, but like I I built up sort of a basic background knowledge of all those teams, which I guess I'm now going to need to do for all these Big Ten teams. Oh man, <laughs> uh, never stops. I know. Um, but, uh, but like, I'm uh, like, I, I, I'm totally unfamiliar with all these out of conference teams. Right. So I don't really know who their, who their aces are. Uh, but like, I kind of have a theory that Oregon's been seeing like nothing but aces and that that might explain the, like where their bats go problem. Mm-hmm. And like, Hey, if, if, if this is a team that can't hit aces, but in a three game series and they only see the ace once. So they're winning series two to one, like, Hey, I'll, I'll take two to one series wins, you know? Yeah. I mean, that's, that, that pretty much does kind of like make the difference is that 
when you're able to have kind of like your ace in the hole, but then you have enough pitching to back it up. And like you said before, there's like up to five, you know, playable pitchers. For right. Oregon. See, and that's so in the a, thing in, in an that entire I'm series against these teams. It might be a completely different story. That's the thing that I'm kind of like really interested to see with conference play and in and in particular series play starting up is how the depth of Oregon's bullpen plays out. Because like every additional like functional pitcher that you add to the bullpen like exponentially increases your number of options for like if something goes wrong, right? Like if you've only got like one good pitcher and one like kind of relief pitcher, then you've got like one plan. And, and like, if something goes wrong, yeah. if your good pitchers having kind of a bad day, like that you're, you're screwed. You don't have like any like alternate structure for what to do. If you've got like five reliable pitchers on the other hand, like you can be making up all sorts of stuff on the fly, you know, sure. like we saw in this <laughs> Baylor game, which we saw four different pitchers, you know, and they were willing to pull, you know, they were willing to pull a pitcher after like, you know, seeing one batter. They're like, nah, Taylor. Nope. Nope. That's enough. You know, you got one strikeout. That was all you need to do. Thanks. You know, uh, yeah. I'm, I'm kind of. <laughs> I'm kind of, I'm really interested to see how this five pitcher thing, you know, works out. All right. Uh, anything else you want to say about softball? Uh, not too much. Uh, like I said, um, just kind of a couple games where like something things bounced their way and one and another where some things didn't. Yeah. Well, they got Maryland. Uh, hopefully, hopefully it doesn't get rained out. Uh, uh, on Friday, we'll we'll, uh, we'll be watching that, and then yeah, conference play starts up. Uh, all right, let's take a break. When we come back, we'll talk some hoops. So you covered the uh, uh, Oregon drubbing Stanford. Uh, yes, pretty satisfying. Definitely. Probably probably the best they've played, uh, certainly this past month. Um, one one of the better games I've seen them put together this season. Oh, yeah. I mean, Stanford's a team that, like, okay, uh, let's – Stanford is probably not going to win the Pac-12 this year, but mm. number one, for some reason, Oregon, like, never beats Stanford when Stanford's at home. Like literally, yeah. like literally they had never done it ever until Dana Altman arrived. Like literally one hundred. It, it, it was like the pre Dana Altman um boulder kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Used to be yeah. Not Palo Alto curse. Yeah, exactly. Uh uh it, it is it, it is the case that literally one hundred percent of Oregon's wins in Palo Alto are owned by Dana Altman. Um and uh, uh, number two, like Stanford is uh, there, you know, they're the team that just out of nowhere beat the beat the hell out of Arizona. You know, they, they they're this team that like treat them like they're a bad team and they will wreck you, uh, yeah. you know. So it's like, OK, like pay attention to this team and then, you know, Oregon destroyed them. Um and like really destroyed him. Like it was a wire to wire thing. Oh yeah, yeah. And and like it, it, they never really, they never really made it to the point where you like felt like the game wasn't in hand. Um, you know, they had like a, a couple little runs to kind of get it down to single digits, but 
even then you you definitely felt like Oregon was in control. And then, you know, once again, as we were talking about before, kind of like how Jackson Shellstad goes, so the team goes, you know, what a shocker. A great, a great performance by him and you know, an easy win for Oregon. Yeah. I mean, they, they played real good defense without fouling. You know, they, they didn't yeah. really send Stanford to the, the, the free throw line that much. You know, Quavian has gotten a little bit of foul trouble, but, you know, not until late and not anything that really limited his minutes substantially. Um, he was still able to, you know, significantly contribute. Uh, you know, he, uh, you know, got some rebounds. Uh, you know, I, th- I thought he was like, you know, pretty good contributor defensively. And I thought, you know, Andy chipped in, you know, nine points on, you know, in 12 minutes, uh, which is, you know, pretty good ratio. Um, yeah. uh, great game for Jadrian Tracy. Um, J- yeah. We always talked about the, the how, how he's becoming more consistent, and that yeah. was definitely one of the one of the more. Uh, I mean, four for five from beyond the arc. Yeah. Yeah, on a night when when Jermaine Cousinard, you know, couldn't find it, his shot, like, you know, like and that's I, what you I, need. You know, you need yeah, exactly. It's like somebody else. Up. Yeah, somebody else stepped up. Yeah, totally. I mean, it was exactly what happened. Um, uh, you know, like Kuznard. I mean, two for twelve, and including one for six from beyond the arc. He just like couldn't find it. It was um, rough. Rough night. For yeah, him. It, it was real rough. But, but between uh, 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 Tracy. Um, and, and then, you know, like we already mentioned, you know, Evans and then Curry Aquendo also, you know, had almost an identical stat line to, to, to Evans, right. You know, non-points on three for six shooting, you know, got a couple, uh, uh, free throws, um, you know, Hey, you know, picked them up. Um, yeah. and, uh, and, and then, uh, and we've gotten this long. How could we not talk about Infali Dante? Uh, he's great. I just really think that he's the most, I mean, in my opinion, in Folly Dante is a single basketball player, like single human being, like for, like, I'm not talking about the whole team or even how he fits in with the team, but just like as a single human being might be the most dominant single basketball player in the Pac-12. Oh yeah. I don't, I don't think that's, that's a stretch to say that at all. Uh, the, like the, uh, the, just the, uh, the presence of him on both ends of the floor yeah. inside and outside. And, you know, for the first couple of years, it was, it was more of a defensive presence than it was an offensive presence, but definitely uh, beginning last year, he started to figure out his, his, his offensive footwork and whatnot. Yeah. And you've really seen a big difference of that. And yeah, no, I, I think that he's uh yeah, he's, he's definitely the man in the middle uh, inside in the pack 12 and uh yeah, it's definitely uh, definitely going to be a, uh, a, a a high pick in the NBA, and uh, been happy to see him be able to complete this after all the uh, all the injuries that he suffered and and had to work through the first few years. Yeah, I mean, thirteen points, eleven rebounds. Uh, you know, uh, plus sixteen in the plus minus in his thirty-one. You know, which means you know performing well defensively. You know, as well. Um, and then, in my, in my opinion, like okay, Infali Dante is sort of the he's he is the obvious weapon that Oregon got back when he a got healthy, and then or, or a, when he 
you know, returned from the disabled list, but yeah. then B, there was a second step, which was his conditioning returning because they had him for a couple of games, unfortunately against the mountain schools in the mountains, which is like the worst possible place you could, <laughs> you know, be having a conditioning issue. Um, in, in, right. Um, but, you know, now he is clearly back to a hundred percent and back yeah. being the most dominant player in the pack 12. That's the, like the, the main story that's sort of like giving Oregon life. I think like one B to that story's one a is Jackson Shellstad who, you know, we were writing stories about Jackson Shellstad, you know, as the, like, you know, as the freshman phenom, you know, the greatest point guard, you know, since, since Peyton Pritchard, you know, uh, uh, you know, and then he sort of hits the freshman wall. Yeah. Right. Um, had a little stretch there that was, uh, yeah, not, not, not so impressive for sure. And he, and then he has a good game against USC, and I'm like, oh, he's broken through the freshman wall. And then he goes, you know, and then he slams it against UCLA. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then he's, well, and then it's maybe it's like, well, maybe that's like, just like, just like when football teams play USC's defense, it's like, did did you did you break through the wall, or did you just play USC? Yeah, um, <laughs> you know. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, so it was like, you know, the three subsequent games against UCLA and then both of the Washington schools, it was right back to like, Bleh. again. Um, but, hey, I, you know, really like the way he played against uh, Stanford, um, you know, yeah. eight or 13 shooting and not just and, you know, five rebounds, seven assists, mm -hmm. like really, you know, great defensive play too. Yeah. Um, which it helped you know, control the tempo of the game. For yeah, sure. exactly. I mean, just like everything that you want on point guard and, and it wasn't like jacking up 20 foot jumpers. I mean, he attempted six, three pointers and made three of them, which is that's, that's good. That's about, that's about the right amount of three pointers that I want him attempting and making half of them is a good number. Um, but what I really liked was how much he was taking it to the iron. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And we talked about that before we said yeah. that like sometimes when Dante's playing well, that the rest of the team has a tendency just to, you know, continue to try and feed the beast rather than attacking the paint. Yeah, uh, but, but in, like in that in that one, you know, Dante played well, and and they they went after it. Yeah, but like they they feed off of each other, you know, like like it, it's it's very clear that 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 the, the, that's peanut butter and chocolate, man. Like in in interior penetration, and then the dish to Dante, like or vice versa, you know that that. You know, he can shovel it to you, you know, when you're dashing in for the reverse or for the lay in or something like that. Like it's the recipe I mean, for on. success. I know, man. Like there's I mean, only good things happen when you drive for the iron. I just like the meta of it is just so obvious. Like it, it, yeah. Uh it, it's it, it and so you know the if indeed, and it seems to be, uh, you know, that he's got his like, you know, confidence back where, you know, it's not just pull up jumpers. It's, you know, taking it down low. Like, yeah. Okay. Good. Good. Oh, yeah. good, good. So, uh, you covered the second of the two Oregon state games. Um, the one that was played in Matthew Knight arena. Yes. Um, uh, this one finished as a seven point Oregon win. Um, 
it probably didn't need to be that close. It was just kind of a unusual case of Oregon State kind of like shooting completely lights out to start out oh, with, yeah. and then and then eventually reality hit. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's kind of a game of runs, but I mean, yeah, they just couldn't they they couldn't like at one point they were the their field goal percentage from the floor was something like 69 or 70 percent like it was yeah. bonkers and then you know the, and then they hit the cold stretch right you know which was basically the end of the game and and you know reality asserted itself the the thing that's interesting to me about this game sort of it was was that oregon pursued exactly the same defensive and overall game plan strategy against Oregon state as they did the game like two weeks ago in Gill Coliseum. Mm -hmm. And like, if you, if you look at the box, like there's one thing that was different, which is in, in the previous game, the Gill game, nobody could make a three pointer. Yeah. And that's why, that's why that game, like both teams scored, like that's why it came down to a game winning dunk. <laughs> well, yeah, but, that was, that but was the like only kind of stuff they were getting, you know, Oregon scored 18 points fewer. Uh, Oregon State scored uh, it, like almost exactly like like 25 or so points fewer. Um, can't do math that fast. Sorry. Uh the the, the 23 or uh, sorry, uh, the 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 um, but it comes down to, to the three pointers like it, everything else about the box score is the same like and it's just in this game, the second game, the Matthew Knight game that that both teams were were making, you know, the the typical one third of all three pointers that you attempt that you yeah. make, whereas the Gill game, it was like two for 19, two for 18, you know, it was just like nobody could make three. And this, so that's why the points were depressed, but like otherwise same defensive strategy, right. Which was like, don't let Jordan Pope have the ball, yeah. uh, force it to Dexter Acano because Dexter Acano, and then, and then have him shoot three pointers, like force, force the ball to Dexter Acano, uh, and, and have him make a quick shot from three because he's going to miss it. And that's exactly what happened. And then they did that strategy again in Matthew Knight Arena. And he did it again. Like, it was so comical that he could be baited into doing that. Like, <laughs> and it worked. Um, they don't really have a reliable big because, you know, Muriel is tall, but he's not a big. And so they didn't, like, fear him at all. And sure enough, you know, he plays 20 minutes. He gets no points. They put him into foul trouble, right? Uh, yeah. It means that everything gets funneled to Billado, who has that weird floater that can't miss, <laughs> right? Um, but, but like eventually it does miss, which is you know when when that goes cold, like he he winds up missing like the like three of the last four that he attempts, which is basically why Oregon State loses, you yeah. know, like they that you know that goes cold. Um, like he like he makes like his first like nine of ten on, on that shot, which is just like you've got to be kidding me, dude. Like like you you get to have whatever you want. Like mm, this isn't cool. Um but then it but then he goes ice cold because like that's how statistics you know work. But otherwise, like the like and then go look at Oregon's offensive production, it's the same guys in the same rate of scoring with the same types of shots like everything is the same other than brendan rixby getting two dunks which was yeah 
Wait, what? Yeah, did you finally, know he finally Brendan Rigsby broke through a little bit and hit some shots. And yeah, got he hit two three pointers, bit. which I was not expecting him to yeah. do. Um, it, it was almost as strange as him hitting dunks. Uh, <laughs> and I think he was surprised by one of them. Yeah, I, mean, that's, I think we all we all we all know in the back of our heads that he can do it, but every time he does it, it just it, it, it was yeah. always kind of a surprise. We couldn't maintain his grip on the uh, on the rim on this on the first one he landed like beautifully on his feet in this very like balletic thing and the second one he 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 lost his grip on the rim and landed yeah on the that like, that Ow. was that was lucky that he didn't get hurt because that yeah. could have been a lot worse fall than it was yeah but anyway like Oregon's production in the first versus the second game it's all the same the the difference is that in the first game the the refs were calling a million fouls on Oregon and allowed Oregon State to get back into the game with a bunch of free throw shooting because Oregon State cannot miss free throws and like literally they didn't miss a single free throw. Yeah. Um it's just that Oregon it, well the refs weren't blowing the whistle in this game. They were in the first game. I I will stop talking. <laughs> how's that how's that for diplomacy adam Do you like yeah that? that no that works uh putting it succinctly for sure meanwhile uh in in the first game uh uh against uh oregon state um only two human beings uh for the oregon ducks shot free throws uh those were dante and uh Cousinard. um literally no one else was allowed to shoot free throws uh in the second game, uh, 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 three different players, or excuse me, uh, uh, I was looking at the wrong side of the, the sheet. Uh, Oregon attempted 32 free throws because yeah. they, because now I'm sure that somewhere in Corvallis, somebody is screaming about like, you know, how dare the refs call four times as many fouls, you know, against my team as against the Ducks. You know, clearly this is a conspiracy, except no, it's not like one team attacks the hoop and the other side the other team is doing yeah. nothing but floaters and pull up jumpers like you know of, it's of something that it's it's something that you see all across basketball for all time where where there's a huge free throw discrepancy and nine times out of ten it's the exact situation that, that we just talked about one team right. attacks the hoop goes goes into the paint and gets those fouls the other team settles for jumpers doesn't and then everybody thinks it's a conspiracy right so but here's the thing like that everybody should be happy about is that Oregon was making their free throws, you know, uh, Bren Rigsby, you know, four for six, uh, Cousinard seven for eight, Jackson Shellstat made both of his. And here's the guy that I really wanted to talk about because I think he had maybe the best game of his career. Yeah. It's Kwame Evans. Absolutely. 22 points on the night, six for seven from the floor. Uh, dude gets nine rebounds, one assist, uh, and, and some impressive defensive stops too on the perimeter where he had to like pick up some guards and stuff. It's a, played great defense. Uh yeah. you know, uh, a really great defense. His uh 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 his uh his plus minus for the 31 minutes he played was plus 17, which for a freshman, like yeah, real nice. Uh and goes to the charity stripe 12 times, hits nine buckets. Yep. Real nice. 
real nice you know that's how you keep the opponent from climbing back into the game and that's that you know so like for all the people who were like screaming the last time oregon played oregon state and they're like you know because it was like how how dare that lousy coach Dana altman who's just miserable like the terrible coach that i can't wait until he retires the guy who just recorded his 750th win and is a surefire hall of famer you morons uh <laughs> right like because because he let oregon state get back into the game you know it's, it's the the way the game was officiated which you don't have to believe in a conspiracy you can just sort of look at you can you can trace the pattern right you don't have to believe that that pattern was imposed but you know by the will of some nefarious malcontent or or someone taking bribes or anything it's just it, it's what happened is that in the first game Oregon State you know kept being able to stop the clock and shoot free throws that they never missed because the refs were blowing the whistle and they weren't blowing the whistle uh, um, when, you know, when the shoe was on the other foot. And then in Matthew Knight Arena, the other thing happened. The team that was never going to the iron wasn't getting fouled. And the team that was going to the iron was getting fouled. And their young uh, players were making all their free throws. So the So that's why... Oregon won and didn't have the inferior team climb back into the game. Like that's, I am, I am attempting to perform analysis here, like, <laughs> and not just like scream and cry and vent my emotions into forum yeah. threads the way that like certain people do. If it sounds like you're being sarcastic. It's just you controlling yourself. Yeah. Right. I don't really think I'm doing a very good job. I, I just think that, that it's like, you know, people, like when Oregon builds a lead and then that lead evaporates, people are mad and upset because of the emotion that that creates. Like Oregon deserves to win by all these points and they instead won by fewer points. And so fire the coach is and like, that's dumb. And, and like, uh, and furthermore, if you saw this game, the, the second game and you're like, Oh, Dana Altman figured something out and he coached different. You know, he must have read our forum thread uh, <laughs> and and learned his lesson. And it's like Dana Altman coached exactly the same game. He called exactly the same game plan, precisely the same defensive strategy to limit and funnel the ball to exactly the same players on Oregon State. The only thing that was different, other than the fact that both of these teams were, were able to make their three-pointers and so they're Therefore, the total amount of scoring bumped up for both teams. The, the The reason why this game had a more comfortable margin and the first game didn't had to do with, you know, blowing the whistle, which Dana Altman does not control the whistle, guys. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> maybe like Phil Knight might like, you know, get some. Yeah, sure. He could have a little influence there, but uh... anyway, it's a Mountain West team now. Uh, not to worry about it. All right, that's enough of that. Uh, you, you got anything more to say about basketball? Um, just just hoping they get it they get it together here because uh, the wins that they're getting are nice, but the losses are kind of ugly and unnecessary in a lot yeah. of in, in the sense. And so, in order to make the tournament, they really need to string together consecutive wins and play with some consistency and urgency. 
Well, they got three more before the Pac-12 tournament, right? They've got the uh, the two games at home against the Mountain Schools, which absolutely, absolutely have to have those. Traditionally, Oregon does pretty well uh, under Dane Altman at home against the Mountain Schools. Like, you know, Colorado, like in Boulder, of course, is like an automatic loss. And then against the other Coach K, he like really had that dude's number. Um uh, Coach Smith has been more of a mixed bag in Salt Lake City, but like at home, you know, in yeah. Eugene, Oregon uh, versus the Mountain Schools is a very tough out for the Mountain Schools. So like I'm sort of thinking Oregon's probably going to pick up at least one of those and Dane Alton's going to hit his magic number of 20. Oh, yeah. um, uh, and then. Hey man, they definitely got an opportunity for a, a, an impressive, you know, quad one win, you know, in the McHale Center. Yeah, you 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 get that win. I think you might have worked your way inside the bubble. Yeah, so that's 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 going to be huge for them. Yeah, a, as you say in your article, uh, which went up this morning, and folks should take a read. All right, uh, let's take a break. Uh, we come back, we'll talk some football. So I published my uh, my most recent transfer article this week on offensive line transfer Matthew Bedford. Um, he comes to Oregon from Indiana. Um, he uh, uh, he's been a starter at Indiana for several years, although I, a bit of a well, it's a bit of a weird history. Let me see if I, I can articulate the whole thing. He um, he got recruited to Indiana in 2019. Uh, he redshirted. Um, most offensive linemen do in 2020, which was the COVID season. And so it didn't count. Um, he became their starting right tackle. The dude's like six, five, maybe six, six. Um, and he's, he's pretty well proportioned. So like, I didn't, I didn't think it was that unusual that he was playing tackle. Although in subsequent years, I've seen him play guard. And to be honest, I think I think he's better at guard. Like, I, I think yeah. it's just a more natural position for him at guard. I think if he winds up going to the NFL, which I think, I think I'm jumping to the end of this story, but like, I think he has a chance of playing at the NFL if he can fix some stuff. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm not sure like why he, he, he bounced back and forth a lot between guard and tackle. Yeah. Well, that's also part of the story. Um, yeah. But but my take is he should be playing guard. I think if he winds up in the NFL, which he has a shot at doing, if some stuff goes his way, it would be at guard. Yeah. Um, and and yet the fact that in 2020, as a redshirt freshman, the fact that he was he was there starting right tackle. I didn't think that that was that like crazy because, you know, it's not like he's six two, and oh, yeah. and real oh, squat. You know, he's got it, the size to play tackle. Yeah, if you if you look at him, you don't you don't automatically see like a sort of a squat like like oh that dude's a guard. What's he doing playing tackle? And like, nah, you could see it, you know, but. Uh, what I then subsequently see when I'm charting him in 20. Oh, the other thing I should say too, is that 2020, uh, I, I, 
I kind of throw statistics out the window that are that like pretty much anything that happens in 2020, I throw out the window because, um, be, well, because, because, because it was a COVID shortened year and everything was crazy and weird. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it, specifically, specifically the way that it was crazy is that, um, or that you, that is like observable as a, like, league wide dip is defensive conditioning was just worse like mm-hmm. de- defenders were were just bad um and so if you're an offensive player like particularly like an offensive blocker like a offensive lineman and like you're facing out of shape defensive linemen because like that th- those are the dudes who are most impacted by the, the practice restrictions right during that season yeah. And like the Big Ten took it more seriously than many other leagues um, that like, you know, hey, it makes your job a lot easier. Um, so I sort of tossed, you know, that that's why I didn't include the 2020 data in my article. I, I, I mean, I throw in the fact that he was the, the starting right tackle because it is part of his history, but I didn't include the statistical production because. Yeah, everybody should be taking that with like a giant asterisk next to it. So where where I start recording the statistical production, because uh, I have been charting every Big Ten game since 2021. And I I'm not quite done with every team for 20 for 2023, but I do have every team done for 2021 and 2022. And I've got several of them done for 2023 indiana is one of them because i did this project for for bedford you know dovetailed of course so anyway so 2021 they move him over from tackle to guard so i get to watch him play guard and i'm like ah this guy should be playing guard Mm -hmm. Uh, um he's their starting right guard he plays that position for eight of the games um they move him over and have him play left guard for three of the games and actually in the in one of the game the 12th game they don't go to a bowl that game that year um they don't is a bad team man um <laughs> indiana is like one of the worst teams in college football uh as the other like context that yeah just 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 so people know yeah like in these this these three years that I I'm charting them just so 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 everybody knows the hell that I've been through charting all these Indiana games they're six and twenty seven against FBS teams uh, they're three Yikes. and twenty four against Big Ten teams yeah r- real bad um, uh, Tom Allen finally got fired at the end of the twenty twenty three season um there's there's other stuff i could say too about how bad they are but anyway um the uh uh so anyway right guard for eight games left guard for three games right tackle uh uh, for one game um uh there's there are observable issues in his technique but like it's his first time in college playing guard so like okay uh, understood so now it's 2022 they move him back to right tackle i'm like what <laughs> it's the open it's the opening game against uh illinois uh right before halftime in the opener he's going to block and like he's dropping back in pass pro and like his his right knee gives out 
and uh uh like he's down he's like screaming like it's real bad um like i it didn't look like he was like folded in half or anything it just looked like all the ligaments you know, was one of these like yeah he just drops back puts his weight on it and his knee is like nope uh, and it's one of those where, yeah uh and he's screaming like he's not having fun and um and they get him off the field and we don't see him for the rest of the year um so this is relevant uh i mean it's relevant for a number of reasons number one my heart goes out to him obviously i never like to see a kid in pain i definitely you know don't like to see a kid you know not able to play the sport that he loves um number two uh we don't know how he would have performed as a right tackle because i you know a a, a non-covid year because that was it that was the last time he ever played tackle was that one half of football um or why they moved him over. Like we didn't get the context for the rest of the year. Like, I mean, I charted the rest of those games because my project to chart Indiana, regardless of Bedford's presence. Uh, but like they had to keep shuffling dudes around. I guess that's, I will now introduce the other piece of context, which is I don't think Indiana's offensive line coaching is good. Like at all. I think it's really bad. I think it's bad in every way. I think the way that they recruit is bad. I think the way that they manage the line, like the, the way that they figure out who should be playing, and what positions how they manage the pipeline um you know by which i mean how they plan the backups and like who's going to be at what spot in future years and so they can like plan the future rotations like um how they develop how they correct technique issues like all of it all of it is bad like super bad and it shouldn't be any sort of surprise at all that i say that because it's a team that loses every game that they play. Like, yeah. of course it's bad. There's no such <laughs> thing as a good there. football. Right. There's no such thing as a good football team with a, with a bad offensive line. And there's no such thing as a bad football team with a good offensive line. Like, I mean, if you have a good offensive line, you'd at least be a mediocre football team. They'll buy you at least that much. Like, yeah. Yeah. So anyway, everything about Indiana's offensive line coaching is just just ugh. Ugh. Um, so so i don't have an answer for you to the question of like why do they keep moving this guy around but probably the answer is because their staff is incompetent and they all got fired so uh. yeah so, i have to do with it the the final thing that's relevant is he is obviously due a medical red shirt for that year he played one half of one game of football. Um, what I don't know is whether or not he has actually been awarded that medical red shirt yet. Um, mm -hmm. I, some sources that I have read have indicated that he has been already granted it by the NCAA. Other sources have, have say he hasn't yet gotten it, but regardless of whether he has or he hasn't he's a shoe in there is absolutely no reason why the ncaa wouldn't give it to him like he obviously is due it and so therefore he should have two to play two remaining he should have 2024 and 2025 remaining yeah. right as he redshirted in 2019 2020 doesn't count. So doesn't count right 2021 counts he played 2023 counts he played 2022 should be a, a medical red shirt year yeah. so he's got 2024 and he should have 2025 you know with the medical red shirt okay 
So then 2023, he comes back. Uh, he's He plays right guard every single game, every single snap. And if, and I mean every single snap because Indiana is like a four and eight team and they have to play to the final whistle. Like there's no such thing as garbage time. Um, and uh, here's the thing that's like in terms of th- there's one of the while I'm giving the narrative, there's one of the thing that I should note, which is Indiana's very first game in 2023 is against Ohio State. <laughs> what a what a, what a cupcake schedule. Yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, Indiana, like, Indiana plays a bunch of good defenses, right? They play Ohio State, but Ohio State's not the end of it. They also play Michigan, and they play Penn State, and they play, well, they play Michigan State, which is not a great team, but they do have some good defensive linemen. They play Illinois, which is not a great team, but they do have some good defensive linemen. They play Wisconsin, which is not a great team, but they do have some good defensive linemen. So they all got good defensive linemen. Well, no, that that's actually not true. Well, that's yeah, that's kind not. of a myth, but there are several teams that that do fit that um that do fit that stereotype. Um, but, but, but be careful that, that, that stereotype is, is too easily applied to those, all of those 14 teams. It does not, uh, fit all of them, um, or even really half of them, to be honest. So anyway, um, against Ohio state, he was getting his butt kicked. Now, it's not that unusual to see Indiana get their butt kicked by Ohio State. It's literally, I mean, literally the power five versus power five, like of of all of of all series histories between two power five teams. It is the this, you know, that has been played more than, you know, 20 games. Right. You know, uh it is the game with the highest, you know, average margin of loss, you know, by yeah. right. Like Ohio State versus Indiana is literally the greatest history of ass kickings in the history <laughs> of college football um, between, you know, power conference uh, opponents. Um, so it that wasn't crazy to see. But then by the time that I had completed the project, what I had realized was that Bedford actually stood up a lot better to all the other good defensive linemen like Michigan and Penn state who, which also had fantastic, like just as good as Ohio state defensive linemen. And then also, you know, pretty strong defensive lines like Wisconsin, Michigan state, and Illinois that all just happened later in the season. Yeah. And so, I wonder like how much of that was Ohio state and how much of that was that just, it was his first game back after missing an entire season, you know? Good point. So, you know, like, I I guess, so I know like, like I'm, I'm now going to pivot to talk about what I think about, Matthew Bedford, but everybody please keep in mind that point, the like the maybe he's not the 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 that a, a chunk of the data about 
stuff that makes me worried about Matthew Bedford does come from that Ohio State game. And maybe, maybe that Ohio State game is a little misleading because maybe he was just rusty. Okay. Um, so what do I think about Matthew Bedford? Um, given that I have watched him for, for basically two complete seasons, the 2021 and the 2023 seasons, plus I watched his 2020 film, but like I said, I sort of discount the 2020 film and he was at right tackle. And I don't think he's really seriously a candidate to play tackle at Oregon. So, you know, I, I watched it, but I'm discounting it. Okay, so what do I think of him? I think that he's his I think he's got a really great frame. Uh, you know, six five, very well proportioned. Like his frame is fantastic. Frankly, yeah. you know, gr- great, great frame. Um uh I think that he's physically, you know, and like he's got all the physical you know, tools that you want. Got, got, you know, nice long arms, got tons of physical strength. He's fast, you know, an like a, an athlete in the, in the yeah, yeah. He's, he's definitely an athlete. I mean, I tweeted out kind of a joke, like, cause they played, you know, Akron, like crappy Akron, which Joe Moorhead coaches now. Mm-hmm. Um, their quarterback is super bad. He throws a super stupid pick, like a, I mean, like, you've got to be kidding me, dude, pick. Um, and the dude who goes and run first of all, Matthew Bedford is blocking on the play super well. It's not like the quarterback throws the pick because, oh, my God, pressure is coming right at him. You know, nope. Um, so <laughs> so then the dude who goes and chases down the 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 intercepting linebacker to keep him from scoring a touchdown is Matthew Bedford. I'm like, dude, between Akron and Indiana like the talent level that <laughs> of the 22 guys on the field, I'm pretty sure the best athlete on the field is Matthew Bedford. <laughs> Actually, yeah, it's not, so not like, exactly a hot take when it comes to that kind of matchup. Yeah. So he's physically strong. He's, he's real fast. Like the way that Oregon likes to have fast linemen so they can run downfield on screens and stuff and block. Not that Indiana was using that very much or very well. Um, but, I did get to see him run from time to time. And I was like, Oh, this dude's not stumbling, bumbling, huffing and puffing. Like, nah, he moves, he moves. And I put a clip compilation of that in my article, to, you know, document it. Um, and he's sharp too, you know, like I, I think he knows his business, you know, he, he knows what his assignments are. And in particular, I think, you know, you know what I think actually is the best evidence of that is I think, I think, opposing defenses knew that he was the best offensive lineman that Indiana had by, mm-hmm. by a, by a long stretch, uh, that, you know, that was very clear. Um, I mean, that's a low bar to clear, but like, it's <laughs> true. Um, and, and so whenever like opposing defenses would sort of run stunts against them, like if they were just straight up attacking, obviously Bedford would get attacked. But if they were running stunts like in overloads and stuff, they would just like leave him alone. He would have nothing to do while they tried to overload everybody else. Right. Yeah. But you know what I liked about what Bedford did was that he didn't go 
oh, I don't have anything to do. I should abandon my post and go try to pick, you know, run way over there and try to do that because that's how you get in trouble. Like I've got like every, like I've got oodles of tape over the years on all sorts of other dudes. Like if I'm, you know, scouting some other team and I'm writing up, like, here's how this team screwed up the, you know, his, this dude, his teammate got in trouble and then he compounded the error by going over and trying to help him. And now the, 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 the linebacker, you know, green dog didn't, he came in and get, got a sack. Right. Well, Bedford doesn't do that. He doesn't abandon his post. He's just like, well, I don't have anything to do, but I'm looking around, keeping my head on a swivel. And I put a couple of clips in my article where I was like, you know, because he didn't abandon his post and he kept his head on a swivel. He like he was able to like pick up something, you know, appropriately um, to, to, to help out his team. So it was like, this guy's smart, this, you know, like good, good assignment, you know, assignment sounds. So like he's got the tools to be successful. Um, and like I said, he was, you know, <laughs> he had the lowest error rates of anybody on his team. Not that saying yeah. the time, but like, no. but on the other hand, th there is one other thing to be said, which is that while I think his pass protection error rates are acceptable, they were about 9%, almost exactly 9%, which is fine you know it's under it's single digits or oregon is usual oregon offensive linemen and pass protection are usually between five and eight percent he's at nine so it's like okay that's acceptable but also keep in mind he was being attacked less and i, I so i kind of think that number is maybe a little artificially a little bit better than it would really be um on like another a different kind of line um yeah, a little bit so, maybe. Yeah, just slightly. Um, his run blocking error rate though is like higher than eighteen percent. Like it's it 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 really seriously needs work. And like those are like the last. I mean, he's physically strong enough and smart enough, and he knows his assignment. Like he knows what he's supposed to do. Like strategically like what, what his job is on this play i don't mean like that kind of technical mistake but you know where i identify stuff is like he's playing too high or he's lunging he's bending at his waist and attacking forward instead of keeping his balance over his feet and like i have a bunch of clips to illustrate this you know it's it's offensive line technique which like for, for a lot of people they really love it and they write me, you know, you know, various nice notes that are like, I, I learned so much about football from, you know, because you're the only person who puts like, you know, the actual explanations of offensive line techniques. And so I love it. And there are other people who write me nasty grams who are like, this is so boring. Why are you boring me with all this stuff? And I'm like, I don't, you know, this is such a Goldilocks thing, you know, it's a matter of preference. Yeah. man. I know, but like, I, you know, I, for the people who like it, they really like it. So I, I, I'm going to keep, and you know but anyway uh if it is your cup of tea man you, you it's a hot cup of tea uh because i really put in there's a lot to there's a lot to go through with his tape because there's some really good stuff for his abilities in in run blocking like he's scooping out 
Um, he's scooping out big defensive tackle. And I'm, like I said, he played good defensive tackles from Michigan and Ohio State and Penn State and, and, and other places that have in and right. There's some really exciting clips in there where he's like, he is mauling and manhandling dudes. Like when he hit gets his technique right and he knows what he's doing, he can really move a dude. Like he's like I understood what the the traits that Oregon identified in that guy and the reason why. Why they said this guy's worth taking as a as as a project yeah know, remember that i said project because i'm gonna come back to that in a second <laughs> not guarantee um, anything yeah um but like the second part of my article is like and here's the problems like here's the technique stuff here's the footwork issues here's the bending issues here's the anticipation issues the lunging issues the playing high issues like here's why even a guy who he's probably a physical match for is beating him because his technique is unsound yeah and that's going back to what i was saying initially about indiana's um offensive line staff like being incompetent <laughs> like this is the stuff that they should have like from the moment like none of this let me say one other thing which is that like none of the stuff that i see in bedford as technique issues it's not like oh this is the first time i've ever seen this in an offensive lineman before number one i see it in all the indiana offensive linemen and number two i see it in every offensive lineman you know like none of it's like you know, I, it's, there's nothing new under the sun, you know, like every offensive lineman who was just like a real big dude in, in high school, you know, and, and, and didn't have this stuff like corrected out of him, you know, uh, you know, has the, you know, like waist bending and lunging and, and, and sort of attacking when you don't have your, 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 your hips sunk, you know, yeah. like it's, it, these are all common issues, but what's not common or actually sadly it is common but but what shouldn't be common <laughs> uh, what should not be common is for your offensive line staff who had you for 2019 2020 2021 2022 2023 tw five years <laughs> five years tom allen to work out those kinks yeah man like i'm straight up mad at indiana's coaching staff those were adults who took money to uh, train him and the rest of Indiana's offensive line to be the best version of themselves and to potentially get paid by the NFL to, to, to do their thing and play this, their sport well. And they just like, they took the money and ran. They like, didn't do their jobs. And like, I did go straight to hell. Like for five years, they didn't, they didn't yeah, train these these technical yeah, yeah if like, you didn't figure it out in like one season or you know even a couple it's one so thing. like i you know I, I i do not blame matthew bedford for it's not like he's inventing these technical issues every offensive lineman has these issues it's on the coaching staff to to work them out um and they didn't do it so now what do i now the question is like how does he fit in to, to oregon's you know offensive line situation i suspect well there's there there's three relevant factors here first of all what does oregon have what are the personnel pieces that oregon has at, 
other than Bedford. They have Davey Uli, who is a four star they got in the 2022 cycle and who got, you know, significant uh, reps during 2023 as a backup and even during a, a number of meaningful reps and who's, you know, a homegrown. Um, the, Marcus Harper returns, of course, as a starter. Um, they also have two transfers um, who came in the last time around. Uh, um, Junior Angelao, who came in, who's a mid four star from Texas, although the last time we saw him play was in 2021. He was injured. Well, he was injured in 2022. And then in 2023, he was injured for most of the time. Although when Tristan did his uh, uh, garbage time project, he reported that he was playing a little bit in garbage time. So he he's apparently healthy enough to practice and play a little bit. So I would anticipate Angelao being and he had a couple of years of medical red shirts coming to him. So I anticipate when the spring roster comes around that we'll see Angelao and he'll be ready to play. So I'm expecting Angelao. And because he's been in the system now for a while, I would expect him to be ahead as well. And same story for Strether, the East Carolina transfer who came in last cycle, um, who uh, he missed 2023 with some sort of arm injury. Um, but like he too was, was in the Oregon system for that whole time. Mm-hmm. Um, now I have observed for quite some time that transfer based offensive linemen don't work out. Um, but, and so I really don't like it when teams try to play transfer offensive linemen right away. But I have also noticed that the data indicates that the transfer portal offensive lineman effect disappears after one year. Like it, it only it only applies to guys who have transferred and try to play right away for their new school. Mm-hmm. Once you've been at the new school for a year and then so that the next year you're a returner. Well, guess what? The data indicates you play like a returner. It's like, I, I don't really theoretically, I don't have a theoretical understanding for why this effect should be, because it's not like I'm in practices or anything. But if I had to guess, it's the like, it's the gelling with your teammates thing. And so like, hey, if you've been in the program for a year, you've gelled with your teammates. And so now you're you're not a new kid anymore. You're part of the team. And so the fact that Anglau and Struther have have gone through that and are now returners. Okay, so so those are all reasons to believe that Anglau and Struther and Yuli are going to be, you know, ahead of Bedford. Right. Yeah that their returners in Bedford is new that they've had time to work in it with a competent offensive line staff and Bedford is, you know, is going to be fresh to it. So I would kind of expect that for 2024 for Bedford to be like the low man on the totem pole, even though he's actually got more like snaps, I think than anybody else he's got, I think I calculated out that he's got like 2000 power, meaningful power five snaps which is, I think, more than anybody else. But I still think he's like the lowest man on the totem pole because, like, that's because of all the reasons that I just said. I think his 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 film of the transfer dudes that I watched. That I, you know, I've now watched three different transfer dudes film. His is the least impressive, I have to say, unfortunately. Um, and he's the he he's the he's the newcomer. You know, so I just think by 
by that logic, he's got to be the lowest man on the totem pole. Yeah. Um, now the other thing and why it's a great pains to, 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 to lay out that he's got a medical red shirt for 2022 is that 2025 should be a different story, right? Like he should come back for 2025. Um, and he'll have had all that time to work on all those technique issues with a competent staff to gel with his teammates you know, to be a returner and like, and if you sort of look at the pipeline, it would totally make sense. Like it's, we're getting real long in the tooth for this podcast. So I don't want to like map out the entire thing, but I have a map. I'm actually looking at it like, oh man, it a hundred percent makes sense. It a hundred percent makes sense for Oregon to have taken Bedford with the plan of developing him as a project over the course of the calendar year 2024 yeah. and the off season 2025. And then they get him as to, to play as a, probably a starter in 2025, which will be his last season of eligibility. And then off he goes to the, the NFL. It's like, perfect. Like, it yeah. Good timing too, because I mean, unless they, nail another uh you know senior transfer or something that's when they'll probably be breaking in dante Moore. uh yeah well it's also when this you know really nice crop of offensive line recruits that they got you know fox crater and the rest of these guys um they'll all be redshirt freshmen and you know having a really talented group of redshirt freshmen you'll probably get one maybe two starters out of you know out of that group plus bedford plus you know we'll see um but you could yeah you could have a pretty nice line you know in 2025 uh actually um yeah i'm i'm looking forward to see how those puzzle pieces fit you know you're always planning like three years in advance with the offensive line you know you you can't slap it together I, i can tell you from doing all my previews of all these other teams like yeah that that's why they suck and are not, you know, perennial playoff contenders um, is because they're slapping together their offensive line at the last minute, you know, whereas Oregon's got their, you know, Hey, let's plan this out many years in advance, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah, I'm Quite like, the yeah. When I, when I was watching Bedford's film and I'm like, Oh, no way this guy for 2024, but Oh, he's got it for 25 and he's got the, he's got the traits, but he needs to be developed. And Oh, look at this. Look at the, the gap that he fills for 25. I was like, ah, I get it. All yeah. of this makes sense. All of this makes sense. Yeah. So, you know, that now I can't guarantee that he'll be ready by 2025. That's, that's on him you know, to correct a lot of those technique issues. And I mean, they're real and you should read my article. You should, you know, check out those clips. They're real. He gets thrown down. I mean, like, like I'm not, I don't mean thrown down metaphorically. I mean, like literally he's thrown to the ground because, and not because he's a small man or a weak man. He's, he's the opposite of that, but because like when your technique's wrong and you get off balance and the bigger they are, the harder they fall, you know? 
Like he, it's serious. The, the technical issues are serious and, and you don't fix serious technical issues that, that, that it, you've been playing with for five years, you know, in an off season, like it's, it's like, I, I would be shocked. I would be absolutely shocked if, if Bedford, if Bedford's playing for Oregon as a starter in 2024, something really bad has happened. It either means the staff has lost their damn minds or they haven't. And he's their best option, which means, Oh no. I guess there's a small possibility that he's a unicorn and he's fixed all of his problems and, and, and it is, and that actually it is the rational choice to play him and he is actually good. But I would rate that as like a 0.01% chance. Um, It is for the 99.9% chance is one of the two really bad things of insanity or awfulness. So let's let's hope it's the the yeah, good things. The former. <laughs> yeah. Let's let, let's let's hope we see him in 2025 because that plan makes a lot of sense. All right, I think that'll do it for this week. Uh, you got any parting words of wisdom for us, Adam? Um, head into March, which is the uh, zenith of college basketball, but we also got you know spring sports starting up and spring football, so still a lot of a uh, lot of stuff to look forward to. Yeah, man, this is a crazy time of year because, you know, we're still doing winter sports, right? As you say, basketball, you know, the the madness that is March uh, begins literally tomorrow. Um, But also all the spring sports, you know, uh, uh, beach volleyball, lacrosse, uh, all all sorts of stuff that we're scrambling to cover for the site. And, of course, spring football, uh, uh, which starts up. They they announced the times uh, for the spring practices and and, and when they're doing the spring breaks. So we are super busy and addicted to quack. Um, We're we're certainly happier to be busier than in a couple of months when we're going to be in the doldrums. And... uh, (laughs) I, I got to drag you guys by the teeth to get you to come up with articles. <laughs> <laughs> fun times, fun times. Yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, the, <laughs> the days are short, but our, uh, our, our writing sessions are long. And I guess so has been this podcast, but it never rains on this podcast. <laughs>